It has been an age of plenty in the markets these days. Okay, maybe there was something of a sell-off the other day. But by and large, the markets are living large. And yet, how equal is the bounty? The tech industry is known for its lack of diversity at the investment level, the executive level, and really still the rank and file. And yet, is it possible that there could be better around the corner? Zoe Bernard had a story this week that actually makes things seem not so bad on that end. Off the news that Bumble, the female-empowered dating app, recently went public and taken there by its female CEO, it looks like more is to come. Zoe profiled some of the next class of IPO-bound companies led by women. It's an eclectic mix, and not what I would have expected. Then in the second segment, we're talking SPACs. Hold on, hold on. This is a different spin. It looks like the crafty SPAC has found a new target, no longer satisfied with the elevation of some medium to good mature businesses into the public markets. Looks like the SPAC is going after the young guns, earlier stage companies that are looking for cash. And yet, like every stage mom and dad wonders at night, are they ready for the spotlight? Corey chats about it with Kate Clark and Ross Madican, who wrote the story. But first, let's talk about the female founders with Zoe. All right, Zoe, so a couple weeks ago, we, there was a pretty interesting IPO, I felt, where Bumble, the, the dating app, went public. And it didn't maybe get as much attention as some of the biggest IPOs, other than the fact that, you know, its CEO, Whitney Wolf, is a woman. And we just don't have that many, you know, female-led companies that are, that are going public this, these days. But you wrote this really great piece that kind of ran down the next class of, you know, IPO candidates that are led by women. Uh, we'll get to the specific candidates in a second here, but just from a broader perspective, I mean, what's your sense on like the, the next class of female-led companies? I mean, are we seeing, uh, you know, uh, an actual wave of, you know, new new talent and, and, and new fresh blood of companies that are run by women? Is there like a real movement happening here? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely believe that we're, there's sort of a sea change afoot. Um, And I mean, we've seen the beginnings of this, right? There's so much, I mean, it it can be disheartening to look at some, at the numbers sometimes when it comes to um, the number of women who are getting investment from the top VC firms or the seed funding or whatnot, but there has been a substantial increase and we're seeing so many interesting companies founded um, by women, by people of color. So I'm, I'm hopeful, and I think a lot of people are at this moment, there's going to be a more diverse mix of leaders um, coming through the pipeline and bringing their company to the public markets in the next few years. What do you think accounts for that? I mean, it's been so bad in Silicon Valley or the tech industry at large for so long. I mean, is this kind of the the fruits of some sort of effort to diversify executive ranks from a couple of years ago finally paying off or uh, just it's just not not clear. I mean, I think that there's obviously a lot of factors at play. It's like there are just so there's so many companies being founded these days. There's so much venture funding. Um, and it seems like these opportunities are, they're still vastly inaccessible for a lot of people, but they are in some ways becoming more accessible. I mean, you could, there's so many little accelerator programs all over the country. You don't really have to be in Silicon Valley. Um, the pandemic is obviously going to have a huge effect on the way that people think about getting funding over a Zoom call versus meeting with a venture capitalist and being wined and dined or whatnot. So I think that there is a slightly more... Um, equitable approach that's being taken in the, in the market right now. Yeah. So let's run through some of the candidates here, because some I know and some I was uh, pretty unfamiliar with. So you have Sarah Fryer, the CEO of Nextdoor. Now, I, I knew her because mm-hmm. she 
uh, was at Square for a while and was kind of like the the number two, a very well placed and powerful number two at Square. Uh, but it sounds to me like they're they're targeting an IPO. I mean, what did what's your sense about Sarah and kind of the stage that Nextdoor is at right now? Nextdoor seems pretty well positioned, and I mean, as Bloomberg reported in October, that they are planning on going public and they're hoping to command a valuation of four to five billion. They definitely seem like they're ready. There seems to be a lot of enthusiasm, and I think with the Bumble IPO, it's like. You know, people are are really anxious and eager to see more women um, leading their companies, li- listing on the on the stock exchanges. Yeah, totally. Uh, you mentioned twenty three and Me. That's a weird one. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and Anne Wojcicki, who is of course the sister of Susan Wojcicki, the uh, CEO of YouTube. Um, what's the sense on how how big of a business that's going to be? Uh, that one always just struck me as kind of an oddball in any group. Yeah, I mean, they've had there has been a lot of controversy about the company. I think that they're positioned in a really interesting way, and they have a lot of different um, offerings that they're testing on the market, right? I mean, they have the ancestry testing kits, but they're also kind of leaning more into health at the moment, and it seems like that's where they see the future of the market. Right, totally. The last one here of per- people that I, I'm vaguely familiar with is the Glossier CEO, Emily Weiss. Mm. Um, sounds like they could be on track for, for an IPO this year. And, and they're, you know, sort of a consumer brand, kind of a media company, kind of a e-commerce outfit. Uh, what do you what do you think about them? I mean, is there a real appetite for for Glossier and and uh, you know their whole business? Glossier would be great for the public markets, right? I mean, it's such a huge name brand. Everybody knows what Glossier is. I mean, the the company has really made a mark on social media. It's become synonymous with just you know young women and Instagram. And I think they've done a really really good job of like just commanding their brand presence. So it's like this very recognizable name that you can imagine that there would be a lot of public appetite to buy that stock. Yeah. And that's and that's interesting too, because that's one of you know the few companies that we have in the list here, which is also predominantly serving a, a female audience, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I got to imagine by and large, it's mostly women that are reading Glossier. Um, and, and that's interesting too. I mean, it's sort of, I imagine promoting, you know, female oriented businesses as well. Absolutely. I mean like Bumble and Glossier, they're both targeted for, I guess, millennial women or, or younger Whitney's Whitney Wolf's story, the CEO of Bumble, her story is very inspiring. Um, and yeah, I think that we have these products that are geared towards younger women and you can really imagine these companies making an impact. Yeah. So just in closing here, as you ran through the various candidates and companies, are there any that surprised you? Either, you know, the executives themselves or the companies uh, just sort of stuck out as like, wow, I didn't realize they were. You know, one that I was surprised about Guild Education, not because I don't think that it would be unsuccessful at all. But I think this was when I was doing a bit of reporting on this and I was asking people what, you know, what companies they thought might be next in the pipeline. And I heard Guild a couple of times. And I remember I did some reporting on the company a couple of years ago and they were in their much earlier stages. And I remember like some people just they were unsure whether or not this type of company, which has a huge impact on social good, they um, they offer benefits benefits programs to employees at um, top Fortune um, 1000 employers, and they offer these education programs. And I think some people were like, is it possible to have a social impact company be really successful? And it does seem like it would be well positioned and that, you know, a lot of like, like it's really taking off. Do you think that assuming all these companies go public and the markets go on and are great forever and we're all just coasting on the success of American capitalism? I mean, is this going to inspire more 
you think companies to place i mean are we going to see much more of this or are we at a point where there's going to be you know a true movement towards equity in terms of the types of people that run these companies i know it's a lot to put on you here but i'm curious i think so no, I, I do think so, though. I mean, I think that, like, first of all, we're seeing more representation, right? And secondly, I mean, one sentiment that I heard repeated over and over again is, like, you know, people talk about the PayPal mafia all the time and how um, that enriched this group of founders who went out and founded the most successful companies of today. And how how could this ha- how could this happen if um, you know if Whitney Wolf's company she's got the majority of the people on the board are um, women and people of color and what what are they going to do who are they going to fund they're probably going to go out and fund people that look like them and think like them right so I am hopeful that this is going to be a moment where we're going to see um, an increase in um, the types of people that are leading super successful companies. All right, sounds good to me. Uh, thanks for joining, Zoe. Thanks so much. If you're like me, you're old enough to remember days like 2016 or 2017 when companies like Uber, Lyft, and Airbnb were waiting seven or eight years or even a decade to IPO in order to be quote-unquote public market ready. These days, though, you don't even really need to be a mature startup or even have much revenue to go public. That's because of SPACs. We've talked SPACs on this show before. There are special purpose acquisition companies or shell companies that have raised cash for the sole purpose of acquiring other businesses. And I've got information reporters Kate Clark and Ross Madigan here to talk about a story they did about how SPACs are hot even among early stage startups. Hey, Kate. Hey, Ross. Hey, how's it going? Hey there. Hey, okay. So, Kate, explain this to me. Are we in a new era when we're just going to see a lot of young private companies go public rather than raising a Series C or a Series D funding round? Yeah, I think so. So this story came about um, because I was having a casual conversation with a venture capital and startup lawyer who said that every single client they had, pretty much regardless of stage, was considering a SPAC. Um, Maybe that was considering a SPAC very seriously and having conversations with SPAC managers or more casual conversations within the company about the road ahead. But basically, the new cadence seems to be, or could could be rather, seed, series A, series B, SPAC. Previously, I feel like early stage companies, you know, were not even thinking about going public so early. What is it about the SPAC structure that is... Um, appealing. Yeah, I think what you said in the beginning of the podcast is that companies were waiting up to a decade, and that has been the norm for quite a while now. At this point, companies have realized that they can shortcut their way to the incredibly frothy public markets by taking advantage of these new vehicles. And in some cases, they can get, you know, better terms and better valuations if they go this route. But, you know, there are a lot of risks. And I think that's something we highlighted in our stories. There are risks both for these companies and for public market investors that are experimenting with buying public shares in a startup that is only $5 million in revenue. Right. Ross, you've done a lot of reporting on the risks involved in SPACs. Um, How do you, you know, sort of what do you see as the biggest risks right now for SPAC investors? I think the biggest risk for SPAC investors right now is that you're bringing public companies that have untested and unproven business models. So you really don't know what's going to happen in a few years. Uh, One of the distinguishing features of the SPAC vehicle that's so appealing 
to these nascent startups is that SPACs can market based on forward projections. So unlike in an IPO, a regular IPO where, where companies highlight their historical financial data, a SPAC can say, hey, you know, in a few years, even though we're making no revenue right now, we think we're going to make $4 billion. But is that really going to happen? You really have to have a healthy dose of skepticism when you're buying into one of these SPAC mergers. So you guys kind of focused the story in the beginning on a startup called Nautilus Biotechnology. Why were they an interesting case study to look at um, in terms of why they would be kind of a, an early company that is now going public via SPAC. So the thing about this story is there are actually f- not a lot of companies that have completed SPACs, um, not a lot of early stage companies that have done this. And rather, we're kind of reporting on what's going on behind the scenes, which is a lot of these companies are thinking about doing it. And we expect that there will be a wave and there will be a new trend of companies as early as Series B Spacking. And so Nautilus is one of a few um, recent examples of a company that is very young, about four years old, has no revenue, has actually just come out of stealth maybe about six months ago, and has recently raised a Series B and decided to SPAC. So that's kind of why we focused on them. We were able to talk to the CEO about why he made that decision, what went into that decision, how long it took to make the choice between a Series C and a SPAC. And I think it was a really interesting way to understand this new trend. Right. So they they come together and, you know, sort of big institutional investors say, like, we think you should be worth like two billion dollars. And that way, like, you know, in an IPO, the risk is like, oh, your price like goes down really quickly. There still is that risk, though, right? Like, do we see much evidence yet of, of, you know, sort of companies valuations really slipping once they actually do complete this merger? Or is it still, you know, kind of too early to tell? Totally. Uh, No, there's certainly reason to be a little bit bearish on SPACs right now because, um, you know, a recent study by professors at NYU and Stanford Law Schools found that the majority of SPAC mergers between 2019 and mid-2020 traded down in the several months after going public. Um, You know, some SPAC uh, proponents argue that that's because it takes time to really market the stock to investors and to sell the growth story. But it is an absolute risk in going public via a SPAC merger. Kate, did you talk to any entrepreneurs or venture capitalists that are skeptical of the SPAC path, particularly maybe in the early stage space and, and are, you know, would really prefer to shoot for an IPO or to keep raising growth equity? Absolutely. I think most people are skeptical. I, I found it interesting. One of the lawyers we spoke to and we quoted in the story, Pamela, who's a lawyer at Freshfields, was just like, <laughs> we've kind of exited this phase where people are as skeptical. And in her mind, she thinks people kind of welcome SPACs with open arms. And while I do think that's the case, you know, um, for many companies, I think most are not considering doing this. I think they still are very fearful of it. It's not proven. And like, while there are a few examples, we really haven't seen how these stocks perform and what happens if, say, a company that's projecting $50 million in revenue in five years doesn't reach that point as quickly as it expected. But yeah, I think overall, there's a lot of skepticism, healthy skepticism for this. And I think a lot of companies are considering, you know, three options for years down the line being SPAC, IPO, and direct listing. Yeah, I think this is going to take a while to kind of marinate into people's psyches. Mm-hmm. Like, there will be probably some high-profile blow-ups as the, I don't know, as 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 
the as time goes on, as riskier companies enter the markets, as there are more case studies of investors really losing out on these types of things. We just it seems like a lot of it is like, oh, this seems like seems like a bubble. You know, I think you, you wrote in your piece, you wrote in your piece that already this year there are uh, there have been 170 SPAC IPOs that have raised like 55 billion already, just like two months into the year. And last year, you know, it was was uh, you know uh, like 83 billion. So it's all it's like on pace to like wallop last year's uh, SPAC IPO pace. Yeah. So what's interesting about this year's SPAC froth is that the market has already raised more capital. Uh, in SPAC offerings than in the entire year of 2019, and we're in late February. So there's clearly a lot of investor enthusiasm for this vehicle and for what it's doing to the markets. Um, What I think is an important concern is twofold. One is that SPACs have a two-year life cycle where they're expected to find a business to merge with within two years of going public in the IPO. And if they don't find a business within two years, you can either, you know, have a shareholder vote to extend the deadline or the cash has to be returned to investors. So if there is a bubble that's going to pop, it's not going to be until 2022 at the earliest into 2023. The other thing that's important to note about the SPAC market, based on my reporting, what I'm hearing from a lot of SPAC proponents and even people who are skeptical from investors, from people all across the map who are SPAC professionals, is that what we should expect to see is a bifurcation in the SPAC market, where we're going to see a handful of really high-quality deals with high-quality sponsors that do trade well and that do show that SPACs are a promising exit opportunity for startups. But we're also going to see a lot of lesser-known, lesser-name, you know, not-so-name-brand SPACs Uh, either have to liquidate or rush to find a merger target, which has already been happening. There are some cases where a SPAC intends to uh, acquire a company in a certain sector. It totally changes plans. The The shareholder vote approves the merger and the stock tanks. And that's something that we could see a lot of alongside a handful of really successful SPAC deals. All right. Well, uh, we look forward to tracking all of these events. Thanks so much, Kate, for, and Ross for, for coming on. Thanks. Thank you so much. All right. That is today's episode. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you to Zoe Bernard, Kate Clark, Ross Madigan for joining. Ariella Markowitz for producing. Have a good weekend, everybody. See you next week.